morning, good morning. If you will, grab your Bibles. I want you to open up. I want you to get the Word of God before you. You can use an app on your phone if you need to, whatever it takes. Um, and find your way over to Luke chapter 23 this morning. We're going to finish up Luke chapter 23 this morning. There's only 24 chapters in Luke, so uh, we'll finish it up in the, in the new year. Uh, this is the last time we'll be in Luke this year. And then uh, after that, we're going to spend a little time in Nehemiah, maybe Ezra as well, not 100% sure, just been praying, considering those things, so we'll see. Uh, anyway, our, our passage today, or in our passage today, we are going to observe the burial of our Lord. Let, let that statement sink in for a minute, the burial of our Lord. Like What a, what a strange thing that, that God could and willingly did die. What a strange thing it is to be, to be loved and redeemed by the living God. And now, this won't surprise you, but the burial of Jesus is, is, is mentioned in all four of the Gospels. Just like Jesus' death, just like Jesus' resurrection, right? This is something of such significance that it's in all of them. Uh, the burial of our Lord is... Um, not to be glossed over, and I think it is easy for us to gloss over it, right? It's not one of the, the major things we even think about. Uh, now, before we read today, I do want to remind you that just before our passage, what we saw, and if this is the burial, it's probably obvious to you, right? But uh, just before what we actually saw was Jesus breathe his final breath. A last gasp of air, he surrenders his life for the sins of God's people. Your faith is in Jesus for, for you. So let's, let's read, and as you follow along with your eye, I want you to follow along with your eyes. Uh, follow along with your brain, right? Be engaged in this, right? Be, be mindful of this. Don't just sit back and zone out uh, like we are so prone to do, especially this time of year when I know you've got busy schedules and you're probably coming in here tired this morning. So fight that. Challenge yourself to stay uh, engaged in the Word of God this morning as we read it, as we unpack it. Uh, we're beginning here in Luke chapter 23, verse 50. Now there was a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea. He was a member of the council, a good and righteous man, who had not consented to their decision and action. And he was looking for the kingdom of God. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then he took it down and wrapped it in a linen shroud and laid him in a tomb cut in stone where no one had ever, had ever yet been laid. It was the day of preparation, and the Sabbath was beginning. The women who had come with him from Galilee followed and saw the, saw the tomb and how his body was laid, and then they returned and prepared spices and ointments. On the Sabbath day, they rested according to the commandment. The grass withers, the flower fades. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, when we understand that Jesus is divine, that Jesus is, is God, it is a very strange thing to read about his burial. God, make this real to us today. Make us to understand the, the weight of death, the weight of our sin upon Jesus. Make us to, to wonder about the details of this silent Saturday, this darkest dark before the dawn is dawn. The Holy Spirit, enlighten our minds Teach us from your word today. Change us as only you can. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. See, sometimes it's, it's easy to forget that during the earthly ministry, 
or during his earthly ministry that, that Jesus had these disciples that we know very little about or we know nothing about, right? Today we get a small glimpse at one such disciple. Uh, he's mentioned in every single gospel, all four of them, but only at Jesus' burial. This is the only place we ever hear his name. Uh, afterwards, after this, we will never hear his name mentioned again, no reference to him, nothing like that in the rest of the New Testament. And so what exactly do we actually know about this fellow? We know that Joe comes from Arimathea. Arimathea is a lost city in some sense uh, because uh, no one actually knows for certain where the location of Arimathea is. Now, I say that, but I, and I also say this, that in the 4th century, uh, the Jewish historian Eusebius uh, actually tried to, uh, he makes this reference that maybe it's the same town as Ramah, uh, right? That's, that's what he's insinuating, which you might recognize is actually the, the birthplace of the prophet Samuel. Uh, so there'd be some, some aspect to that. Now, here's what we know for sure. We know for sure that Joseph's one of the 71 members of the Jewish high court called the Sanhedrin. Uh, these were men who were uh, well-educated, or men who were wealthy. These are, are men who are very prestigious in the community. They had a good reputation. And so we know that Joe of Arimathea himself was also well-educated, wealthy. He had a, a prestigious reputation himself. Now, in verse 50 here, you can see that Joseph is called a good and righteous man. That is quite the compliment. Do you know anyone that you introduce that way? When you talk about a friend or such, right, that you say, so uh, my friend I was telling you about, uh, Jonathan, he is a good and righteous man. That, that's what he is. I mean, do you introduce anybody like that, right? And, and what they're saying here about Joseph, right, this means that Joseph is a, a man of great character, and if the scripture speaks of him that way, it raises a bit of a question for us, doesn't it? Because again, he's part of this Sanhedrin. He's part of this, this Jewish council who unjustly declared Jesus guilty of blasphemy. And, and so what are we to make of that? How can a good and righteous man actually be part of the Sanhedrin? Here we, we learn that Joseph did not agree with the council. He didn't. Um, but he also didn't object in the moment, did he? I, I know this because in Mark uh, 14, 64, we learn that not some of the council, but all of the council condemned Jesus of deserving of death. All of them, right? Which leaves us to or two options here. Either Joseph simply wasn't present when this was going on, or he remained silent as he watched others condemn Jesus. Therefore, it looked like all. Either way, in his heart... Uh, he was at odds with the work of the Sanhedrin. He didn't agree with what they declared. He didn't agree with their actions, what they did. Uh, and yet, this is the very group to which he himself belongs. Now, it, it's good for us to remember that even in organizations that, that do evil things, in God's providence, there may still be good and righteous, God-fearing, Jesus-following individuals. And you might still be wondering at this point, but was Joe of Arimathea a true believer? Was he really a believer? And, and I'll say this, he, he certainly was, right? That's, that's why Luke points out that he was looking for the kingdom of God. Now remember when Jesus in Luke eleven nine 9 said, seek and, and you will find, right? Seek and you will find. And if, and if that still sounds a little too, maybe not, right? Any doubts there about whether Joseph is a true disciple, consider what John nineteen thirty eight says, uh, which says, after these things, Joseph of Arimathea who was a disciple of Jesus, was, uh, but secretly for fear of the Jews. 
That last part probably bothers us, secretly for fear of the Jews. I know some of us will hear that last part and think, this Joseph guy is an absolute coward. Why didn't he speak up boldly? Why didn't he object boldly? Why has he followed Jesus secretly? After all, Jesus himself, back in Matthew 10.33, said, Whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. So was Joe a coward? Maybe. It's easy for me to call him a coward where I stand, right? As I stand in 2021 as, a, as an American, nice place of safety. But maybe, maybe Joey was a coward. Maybe he's a, a coward who was new to believing in Christ. Maybe he's a coward who God was working in. Maybe he's a, a coward who God used in this work of redemption. A coward who in this moment sheds his coward skin. And, and though he may still be absolutely terrified, even in this moment, right? He, he takes this bold risk after, after watching Jesus breathe his last breath. He's compelled at this moment. For at this moment, Joseph identifies himself with Jesus. As a member of the Jewish Sanhedrin, he has access to the governor, the Roman governor, that others simply did not have. And so he asks something along the lines to the governor, right? He says, Governor Pilate, would it be permissible for me to take Jesus' body down from the cross and bury him? Something like that. Why does he even care? Why does he care if Jesus gets buried at all? You see, uh, the way the Romans typically did crucifixions is they just left the bodies up there to rot for quite some time on the crosses. It was uh, beneficial to their purpose of crucifixion, right? For there's more time for people that are walking by, that are passing this, to, to see the person hanging there, a dead man just hanging on, the, on this thing with the label of what they've done. And, and, and they think, you know what? I think I won't be a traitor if that's the way this turns out. So they'd let him rot. Now, we don't know much about Joseph's interactions at this point, what actually happened in, in the next few moments. Did, did Pilate ask him, you know, why exactly do you want the body of this Jesus fellow? Did he have to answer that? Did Pilate even care? Did, did the other 70 members of the Sanhedrin, you know, get upset at him for this? Did they call him out for this? Did they take him off their Christmas card list? Or did they unfriend him on Facebook? Or probably it was MySpace back then, but... In all seriousness, is Joseph identifying him, himself as a disciple of Jesus here? Right? I mean, this is a big deal that he does that. See, is this the reason? This is where I wonder, my head goes to. I think, you know what? We never hear his name again. Is this the reason we never hear his name again? Is he somehow removed from this community? Did it... Did it did it cost him his life, right? And, and this is one of those you can add to your, your list of eternity questions, those questions you want to ask God when you get to heaven, right? And these kind of things. Whatever, whatever happened to Joseph of Arimathea? And where's Arimathea? Uh, bottom line is it, it certainly cost Joseph his reputation. It probably cost him the career that he spent his life building up. It, it may have even caused him his life. You know, following Jesus might cost you your reputation as well. And Christian, that's okay. That's okay. And are, are there people to whom you do not wish to be outed as a Christian in your life? At least outed as like a real Christian that you really believe this stuff? 
Or are you willing to be identified with Jesus no matter what the cost might be? You see, it's, it's one thing for us to gather in here, and it's a good thing, right? But it's one thing for us to gather in the safety of, of this space on a Sunday morning, and it's quite another thing to proclaim Jesus as, as, as your Lord at your place of work, in, in the classroom, where, wherever it is that people know you and have ideas about you, right? There's two more things in this section, and then we'll move on. The first is this. We, we learn in, in Mark and John that that Pilate was actually surprised to hear that Jesus had died already. Didn't usually go this fast. And so he had a soldier go out there and stab Jesus' body in the side to, to test something, right? And when the soldier did so, out came this mixture of water and, and blood. And in medical terms, this is a, an effusion of blood into the pericardium. Cardium. It means absolutely nothing to me when I read that. I'm not a doctor. I don't know what that means. Maybe you do. Uh, Here's what I've had it explained to me, that this is the telltale sign that death has actually occurred. That's why when that happened, they're like, sure, you can have his body, the man's dead. Um, and so as a result, the body of Jesus was give, given to Joseph to go and bury. Now, the second thing of note here is this. Had the apostles, had the other disciples of Christ made a judgment about Joseph before Jesus' death, they, they would have seen Joseph as them. Would have seen him as the others. They would have seen him as an evil enemy belonging to the wrong group, to the wrong tribe, and, and yet God was at work in Joseph's heart even at this moment. You see, Joseph is in this progress of, of sanctification as, as we all are. My, my point is, is this, be, be careful, especially in the world we live in right now, be careful. You don't judge and dismiss people as, as hopeless enemies even if they seem against God, even if they seem apathetic to, to Jesus and the gospel and the scriptures, right? Um, don't write anyone off because God may be working in them in some amazing ways. Or in the words of our, our Lord, right? Love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you. Now in verse 53, we learn that Joseph took down Jesus' body and he wrapped him uh, in, in linen. It sounds simple. You ever think about what actually it took to get those words to be a reality. First, he, he had to, to look up at our Lord's bloodied and limp body just sagging upon that cross and to see all those wounds from the beatings he has taken. And then the cross had to be removed from the hole and reclined to the ground so that they could remove him from it. These thick nails, five to seven inches long, with some force had to actually be pulled out of the wooden cross. They had to be removed from the hands, the feet of Jesus. From the other Gospels, we, we know Jesus' cold body was wrapped first in strips of linen, and then it was covered in uh, a linen cloth, which is called a shroud, as it is in our passage today. Uh, this tomb that Jesus was laid in is, is quite different from anything you or I see as we, we go into cemeteries today. <clears throat> At this time, uh, there were only really two main ways that people were buried, and most people were buried in this, this shallow, ditch-like grave and, and covered in dirt. Uh, disturbingly, these were often dug up by dogs who would go after these bodies, just like your dog probably digs in the trash every chance it gets. Uh, the other way that people were buried, the way that, that the wealthy people in the community and culture were buried, was in these stone tombs that were cut just into the wall of a, a cliff, uh, hollowed out. And, and bodies would be prepared with these nice smelling things, knowing they're going to rot and smell horrible. Uh, and they'd be put in the center, and, and, and that's where they would sit while they rot. Now, when, when I was a, a child, my, 
my dad and my brothers went to some hunting and fishing show one time, and they won a alligator hunting trip. We didn't have alligators in Texas. We do now. We didn't then. Um, and anyway, so they go away, and they come back, and they had these three alligators, but they only had their heads because apparently they sold everything else off to somebody. Um, and they had these big, meaty, nasty alligator heads they just sat on our driveway for a while. And, and then they stuck them in the corner of the yard, which my mom, I remember, was not a fan of, uh, nor were the neighbors whose fence was over there. Uh, and, and the idea was, what, what ended up happening is they just began to rot, and bugs of all sort came in and ate all this stuff on it. And I can't remember how long, but some period later, in our corner of our yard, we just had this alligator skull. It was just the bones that was left. That's what would happen in these tombs. Uh, they're, they're rotting, bugs would get to them, and, and then at a later date, they would come back and, and open these tombs, and what would be left is just the bones of a body. At this point, they would reorganize it, put the bones in a, a stack somewhere in the corner, or put them in a box, and, and make room for the next person, next family member that would need to be buried as well. And, and we know, right, that Joseph is rich, and we know from the other Gospels that he has recently purchased this richy, rich tomb, uh, one of the fancy stone-type tombs for himself, for his own family, and, and believing that Jesus deserves more dignity than rotting on the cross, more dignity than being buried in a, a shallow grave, he actually gives his own tomb for Jesus to be buried in. Now, in the Gospel of John, we learn that Joseph doesn't prepare Jesus' body alone. Uh, right? He kind of gets that picture here in Luke. But in John 19.39, we, we learn Joseph is helped by a man named Nicodemus. You recognize that name? You know this name, Nicodemus, right? Uh, John even describes him so that you can place him properly as uh, who earlier had come to Jesus by night. This is the same Nicodemus from John 3. Uh, let me read that to you, John 3, 2 and 3. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher Come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. And Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Well, hallelujah. Here, here's Nicodemus, right, showing up to bury his Savior. Nicodemus was born again. Now anyway, back to John 19, uh, where we read this. Nicodemus came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloe, about 75 pounds in weight. And so they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with spices, as is the burial custom, custom of the Jews. So, so not only does, does Joseph giving, uh, giving his family tomb to Jesus uh, for this, you know, respectfully to honor our God, but it's, it, it also serves us as absolute fulfillment of an ancient prophecy uh, in, in Isaiah, which said that the Savior would be buried in a, in a rich man's tomb. And here it becomes true. Now, in, in verse 54, it tells us this, that, that this is the day of preparation. This is the day that's leading up to the Sabbath, uh, which is going to begin at sundown. As soon as the sun sets, thus begins the, the Sabbath. Now, the, the, if you practice the Sabbath, you, you probably know this already. You've experienced this. There's this, this rush of getting things done, of running errands and making sure homework's done and all that kind of stuff so you can actually partake in the day of rest without worrying about those things. Now, uh, before we move to the last section of our passage, we need to consider one more thing here, and, and that's this. The simple question is, why does the burial of Jesus matter at all? We already know he's dead, right? He's on the cross. Well, why is it in all four Gospels? Why does 1 Corinthians 15 say that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scripture? That seems like enough, but it also goes on to add this. He was buried. Why is it mentioned in our most 
ancient creed, the Apostles' Creed, right? You know this. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. Why does it matter? Why not just focus on Jesus' life and death and his resurrection, those important things? You see, his burial is important because it, it verifies his death. It's important because Jesus had to be truly dead in order to save sinners like you or me. That's what was necessary. It's important because it means Jesus wasn't swooning. He hasn't fainted. There's nothing like that. He is dead and he is buried. The Heidelberg Catechism, which we listened to earlier, right? A bit of a spoiler alert as we use it in our liturgy today. But question 40 asks, why was it necessary for Christ to humble himself even unto death? And the answer, because of the justice and the truth of God, satisfaction for our sins could be made in no other way than by the death of the Son of God. And then verse 41 really gets to the heart of that. Why was he buried? If you remember the answer from earlier, his burial testified that he really died. You see, if the wages of sin is death, and Romans 3.23 is very clear, the wages of sin is death, then Jesus could only satisfy the full demand of justice by truly dying. You see, Jesus doesn't make just the first payment for us. He doesn't make some really big down payment to get us on our way towards salvation or redemption. No, Jesus makes the full payment for, for our sin with his death. And this is confirmed by the burial of our Lord. Now let's consider the last two verses here. We, we keep hearing about these women, I don't know if you've noticed this in the last couple chapters, these disciples of Jesus who are always somewhere nearby. <clears throat> this is a pretty big deal. I mean, think about where Peter is right now. Do you even know? Where are the other apostles at this moment as the Lord is dying upon the cross? And yet, here these women are still as near to Jesus' body as they can possibly be. They continue to honor Jesus when there is every reason to no longer have faith and to simply walk away, consider this a failed hope. Now, you might remember way back in Luke 8, we, we learned about some of these women. We learned that not only have they left their home to follow after Jesus and to go with his apostles, but they also, as Luke 8, 3 says, they provided for them, Jesus and the apostles, out of their means. See what it's saying? They, they have given what they have to minister to our Savior. And so who are these women? Why do we keep hearing about them? Uh, two of their names are, are given in Mark 15:40. Mary Magdalene, that one should sound familiar to you. And then an, another Mary, usually whenever it's, a, you know, it's a Mary, Mary. There's so many Marys in the New Testament. Um, anyway, Mark also tells us that there are so many other, there are other women, right? Many other women that are watching Joseph, that are watching the body of Christ from a distance. They, <clears throat> they want to care for Jesus. That's why they're there. But but they don't have the access, right? That's what Joseph has that they don't have, that they, they, they lack, namely the connections to actually get Jesus' body from the cross. Because they couldn't just walk up to, to Pilate. They didn't have that kind of access any more than you and I could walk up to Governor Kelly and ask for a favor, right? And, and so they lingered. They, they watched from a distance. And can you imagine their surprise when they watch a man who was a member of the Sanhedrin? When they see one of the bad guys suddenly do something good, their minds have just been blown, I imagine. As they watch Joseph request Jesus' body, 
and wonder why he did that. As they watch him take down his body from the cross with dignity, and before he and others, you know, carry Jesus to his own fancy tomb that he's going to give his own tomb for this. Again, we, we ought to be not so quick to, to label people or to consider them lost causes because in the hands of our Lord, there are no lost causes. Now, once they see where Jesus is buried, the women, right, they go home and they prepare spices, which seems a little strange since in, in, in John 19, we learn that, that Joseph and Nicodemus, they already put about 75 pounds of myrrh and aloe with Jesus. That's a whole lot of anything. Right? More spices are not needed. That's not really what's necessary. But what you see is that the, these sweet women, they, they have no expectations that Jesus is going to be resurrected. And since the Sabbath is beginning, they, they just hope that after the Sabbath, they're going to come back and they're going to be able to contribute what they can. Who knows how many spices they actually have. Um, <clears throat> that they just want to contribute these fragrant spices to, to what they believed was going to be Jesus' rotting body. I was in, intrigued here to learn that myrrh is used in the burial of Jesus. You, your head's probably already put it together yourself since myrrh along with gold and frankincense were the gifts given to Jesus at his birth. Most of us don't even know what myrrh is, right? In the old Monty Python, they're like, next time, don't worry about the myrrh. Um, but myrrh is this expensive perfume that's obtained from these trees that uh, exist only in Africa and, and Southeast Asia. It was often used in burials like we see here. And if you just think back through, you know, his birth to his death, what an amazing thing. What a, what a gift for a child who was born to die. Myrrh. So the last thing we see regarding the women in our passage here is so simple. It says, on the Sabbath, they rested according to the commandments. See, this, like everything else we've learned about these women, confirms their godly character and their commitment to honor God. J.C. Ryle, regarding this, says, we, we see our Lord frequently denouncing the human traditions of the Jews about the Sabbath observance. We see him purifying the blessed day from superstitions and unscriptural opinions. We see him maintaining firmly that works of necessity and, and works of mercy were not breaches of the fourth commandment, but nowhere do we find Jesus teaching the Sabbath was not to be kept at all. Since here, at Jesus' death, his, his followers, his disciples, continue to honor the day of rest, that there's no way that we can assume that Jesus taught them to disregard the Sabbath in any way. And so our passage ends as the Jewish Sabbath begins, which again was, this is sundown Friday, just to get your mind around it. You see, we know nothing of what anyone did besides rest on that Saturday. I've always uh, love the Cademan Call lyrics there, right, Re regarding this when they're singing. They're singing to Jesus in these lyrics, and they say, It's like that long Saturday between your death and the rising day when no one wrote a word wondering, is this the end? For the apostles and, and these women, all signs point to this is the end. This is it. You know, to, to recontextualize Nietzsche's infamous declaration, in, in one sense, God is dead. No one is, is treating this like a, a child on, on Christmas Eve thinks, right? Trying to fall asleep, but just too excited as they anticipate what comes the next day. It's, it's not like that. What I'm saying is that they don't know that the resurrection is coming. They have no idea. They should. We look back and we're like, look at what Jesus said left and right, right? They should know, 
but they don't know. Everything they're doing is, 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 is this statement of he is going to stay there and rot. That's what the spices are for. That's what the tears are for. No one's expecting that. In a lot of ways, they are like us when we tend to believe that death is the end of the story. In a lot of ways, they are like us when, when today we, we wrongly forget that Jesus really will return for us. Let us not lose hope, for in, in Jesus Christ, there is an everlasting hope. Cannot be removed. Finally, I, I want to close by reading to you this ancient quote, quote from Maximus of Turin. How many of you know Maximus of Turin, one of your favorites? Of course you know, Jim. I'm going to make up a name one day and see if you remember. Do you know Maximus of Jackson, Florida? Yeah. Yeah. So Maximus of Turin, this is a Christian, a believer who lived 1600, over 1,600 years ago, and this is what he writes. He says, let us see why they placed the Savior in someone else's grave instead of his own. They placed him in another person's grave because he died for the salvation of others. Death did not just happen to him, but it benefited us. So why should he have his own grave? Let us pray. Lord God Almighty, it feels wrong stopping here. It feels wrong not moving on to the next passage where we see hope fulfilled. It's not wrong. May we feel the weight of our Lord's death, the, the weight of his being buried in, in a grave, in a tomb, and, and yet may the Holy Spirit within us remind us even now that the darkest day of, this, of existence was shortly followed by the most glorious day ever. So, Father, let us feel the weight of, of your death, your burial, but not, not without hope. For we know too much. We know the resurrection is coming. We're here because the resurrection actually occurred. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.